This is a Federal News Network podcast. An immigration judges union is making its case before a federal appeals court to regain full recognition after losing its collective bargaining status under the Trump administration. The National Association of Immigration Judges is asking the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit to overturn two decisions by the Federal Labor Relations Authority to eliminate the union's status. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the union president, Mimi Sankov. We, as the National Association of Immigration Judges, NAIJ, we filed a petition for review of a decision that came out earlier in the year in which our 635 immigration judges were basically they were stripped of their union rights. And this is a union that's been in existence for over 51 years. So when we were stripped of our rights, it was the result of a decision by the Federal Labor Relations Authority when it was still in the context of a Trump majority. And there are three members of the authority and it was a Trump administration majority. It was basically it was a decision that was a shocking decision. We were denied the ability to continue to be a union. We were decertified. And even the decision that was issued, it was a two-to-one decision, the dissenting opinion of that decision issued by then-member Ernie DeBester and now chair Ernie DeBester explained the following. He basically said that the majority had cobbled together a decision that ignored precedent that ran afoul of its own rules, specifically on the collateral attack of a previous certification bar. And it failed to grapple with the findings of the regional director, which had held that we are not management officials. And he described their argument as nonsensical and the antithesis of reasoned decision-making. Basically, that's what we feel as well, because that decision is both nonsensical from our standpoint as well, and also conclusory in nature and lacking in analysis. So we were arguing our case before the D.C. Circuit Court, and we're really pleased with the level of engagement by the panel of esteemed judges. The main argument here is just that these immigration judges, they're not management employees and therefore should not be treated as such. That's a great way of saying it. And the panel really delved into a lot of the details of how that determination is made and whether we were given a fair hearing at the Federal Labor Relations Authority level. And those judges were so well prepared, they provided arguments and discussion points that were extremely valuable and really went to the crux of the issues, as we would have expected. And just as far as one variable in this, the Justice Department has removed its complaint. And of course, we are dealing with a different administration here. The Biden administration has had a very different attitude with collective bargaining, has signed an executive order to that effect, making it easier for collective bargaining to happen under the administration. So just from your perspective on things, can you tell me just how that change of administration makes you perhaps more optimistic about the outcome of this ruling as opposed to the previous one? We were certainly optimistic and have been appreciative of additional engagement on the part of the Department of Justice in their dealings with us, although it has not reached the level of the level of engagement that we would have expected, where we would have full voluntary recognition. No, the Department of Justice has not provided that. They have provided some discussion, but they define the terms of that discussion and they are not held to account when they choose not to engage. 
But the main point here is that the decision and argument pending before the D.C. Circuit Court, of course, is not in any way really influenced by the current administration, except that the FLRA has the authority to withdraw its opposition to our case pending before the D.C. Circuit, and they've chosen not to. So we're concerned that the FLRA is continuing to advance this case, even in the most union-friendly administration. They are the employees of the Biden administration, and they're still advancing this union-busting activity. I don't know if this is a question you can answer here, but does that surprise you that, you know, given the change in administration and the, the change at the tone at the top, this is still how the DOJ and the FLRA choose to respond to uh, the current situation? We're surprised but very hopeful that at some point in the near future, we'll see a reversal of the approach that they've been taking because it is lawless in our view and in the view of many, and um, it is worthy of reversal. Just to recap here, you know, of course, the um, not being recognized as a union has some ramifications in terms of collective bargaining and all the things that a union does. But can you just summarize what the day-to-day impact of that FLRA ruling has meant for your association? The impact is extraordinarily significant. We have 634 immigration judges, which depend on having collective bargaining rights. It's so critical for our judges because we are at the apex, essentially, of some of the most challenging and difficult determinations that have to be made in federal government, and that is how to address the immigration cases that are pending before the court and the burgeoning backlog, which has now reached nearly a million cases. When you have an administration that is not tethered to labor management responsibilities and subject to the federal labor relations statutes, then they can engage in however they see fit in pushing cases through the process too quickly if that serves them politically. And we have been arguing for decades now that the immigration court should be at a minimum removed from the Department of Justice because there is a conflict and a politicization of the entire process based on whoever the political leader is at the time. So the immigration court should be removed from the Department of Justice and a separate Article One immigration court should be created. The Congress and the House of Representatives has already drafted a bill and introduced that bill. It's passed the Judiciary Committee in the House of Representatives, and we're very hopeful to see that reach the floor in the coming session and an introduction of a companion and similar bill in the Senate, hopefully in the session ahead. Yeah, and actually to circle back on the the backlog side of things, and you know, it does seem like a very considerable imbalance of workload to workforce. Can you tell me what the association is pushing for in effect from a workforce perspective? We are resource starved by comparison to the amount of work that we are responsible for completing. We have, as I mentioned at the outset, 634 immigration judges currently seated, and they are trying to handle nearly a million cases. That's not an exaggeration. It's nearly a million cases, and this backlog just keeps growing. If you break that out, you can just do the numbers and see that it requires an enormous amount of support in order to try to get anywhere close to finishing that level of work. It requires an increase in the number of judges and, more importantly, the teams that surround that judge. One judge is not effective if it doesn't have the team.
team members surrounding it to ensure that everything is ready to go on the days that those hearings are scheduled. Because if you don't have staff that calls the attorneys and lets them know that their case is scheduled on a certain day or sends them their hearing notices or schedules their court interpreters that are needed or work with judicial law clerks to make sure the judge is up on all the issues that are currently pending, all of those pieces have to be in place and a resource-starved court as the Department of Justice is has done with the immigration court leads to what we have today, ineffective ability to complete the amount of work that we have currently on our plate. Mimi Sankov, president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. 
there's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. 
other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right? To up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. 
Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.